they asked about us courting, and so I gave uh, like a two-minute version of it, and Joanna gave a three-hour version of it. <laughs> so that's why you probably didn't see them during the games. They were still talking in there. No, but she gave a fuller version of our courtship, which is very interesting, and it had some ups and downs for sure, um, but the Lord used it um, in our lives and those around us. It's interesting just how the Lord controls all things, isn't it? Well, it's more than interesting. It's comforting. Because if he controls everything, that means that there's nothing that's happening to you that's not beyond his reach and beyond his support and beyond his intervention. Uh, we can trust in him. So definitely that's the big picture that we gain from Isaiah. We serve a big God. And because of that, we can trust him in all things. And why don't you just pray for me as we go back to the Word of God and consider, you know, these great principles before us. Lord, thank you for uh, your goodness, uh, your graciousness that you show us. And even now, Lord, um, that you would use it for the glory of your name, that we might um, rest in you a sovereign Savior you control all things, Lord, and we thank you for that. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. And uh, go back uh, with me to uh, Isaiah. We're going to continue our look in Isaiah and this big picture about God as the Holy One of Israel. And I know that um, I've given you nine points, and we, only, we didn't even finish the first one. So you're wondering, are we going to have an extra session or something like that? No, it's set up that way. I really have to make sure that we get the first point and everything else will flow from that. You know, we left off talking about the Holy One of Israel. What does it mean that God is holy? There's a weightiness to it. Even it captures this idea of being separate, unique, um, and at times even to simply be bright. That God is bright because he's a God that it tells us in scripture um, it's in an un unapproachable light. And we began to look at the Holy One of Israel through the book of Isaiah and through it picking up themes with it as well. Um, God is saying that I'm the Holy One of Israel, but yet I have woes against those who are um, sinful people. I'm the Holy One of Israel, but yet I will show you compassion. I'm the Holy One of Israel. Uh, despite your wickedness, I will instill, I will still show you grace, which is a wonderful picture of our God. And I want to pick up there um, with this idea of the Holy One of Israel. Uh, we're going to look a little bit more into, the, into what it means that God is holy, and then we're going to start to unfold uh, those other expressions of God's uniqueness. Now, let's go to Isaiah 43. Isaiah 43 Again, it says that in verse 3 and then verse 14, uh, I want you to understand these in context. In Isaiah 43, 3, I am Yahweh your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I've given Egypt as your ransom and Cush and Sheba in your place. And then in verse 14, it says, For thus says Yahweh your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I have sent to Babylon and will bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans, into the ships in which they rejoice. So what is being communicated here? Again, we said, if you remember the Holy One of Israel, we find it like 26 times in the book of Isaiah, and almost evenly uh, distributed chapters 1 to 39, 12 times, and then chapters 40 to 66, 14 times. So this theme is running throughout the book itself. And that's even in one sense, one evidence why uh, we take Isaiah to be the sole author of the entire book. And it's not Isaiah wrote the first part, and then someone else wrote the second part. Isaiah runs this theme throughout the entirety of the book with purpose. And it begins in chapter 1 that God is a unique, distinct God. He is holy. He is a God that is separate from sin, but yet he must punish sin. But yet, time and time again, we see why doesn't he punish it? Why doesn't he punish it? Why doesn't he punish it? 
because he's also God of compassion and kindness and long-suffering as well. And all of us should be thankful that God was patient with us and he showed kindness towards us and he showed us mercy. Because what does the scripture tell us? You remember uh, in Ephesians chapter 2, we were all dead and our transgressions and our sins, verses 1 to 3. And then in verse 4, I love verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, which with he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. And I love that statement. And again, it's another indication that God is a holy God. He will punish sin, but yet he will be gracious towards us. And ultimately, the way that he can be gracious towards us is because his son was punished in our place. Now, what does this mean here in Isaiah 43.3? What is the statement, particularly in verse 3, if you notice it, for I am Yahweh, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Remember, God is saying to the people of God, I will restore you again. I will bring you out of captivity. You don't deserve it. You've committed covenant treachery. You never learned the lesson from your northern brothers. You should have been a people that would have learned from them, but nonetheless, you didn't. You have tried me and tested me, and my patience came to an end, and now I must punish your sin. He sends them away. But he sends a letter through Isaiah that says, I will bring you back despite your sin. And he makes an indication here because he says, I have given Egypt as your ransom and Cush and Sheba in your place. And what does that mean? Um, How is it that Egypt and Cush or Ethiopia and Seba, what do they have to do with Egypt? Um, What do they have to do with Judah being a return from exile, because I would take the position, and others would as well, Cyrus, when he begins to plunder the other nations, God is saying, Cyrus, in one sense, I'm going to allow you to punish the Egyptians for me, and even the Ethiopians, I give these other nations, I give these other African nations to you, so that you will come and plunder the Babylonians for me. It's like he's, in one sense, almost he's paying uh, wages to Cyrus the Persian that says, because I have such a heart for my people, I will give these other nations in place of you. And this is just another indication that God controls all things. In every nation, every people, God is in sovereign control. He is the ultimate deliverer. And then he says in verse 14, that I'm going to deliver you from the Babylonians or the Chaldeans, which is just another word for the Babylonians. I will be faithful. Now let me give you some other references, and we won't go in them in detail like we did earlier, but I want you to have them just for your reflection later on. In Isaiah 45, 11, this is a, a chapter that talks about Cyrus is that servant. He is going to come. And then in chapter 45, 11, He is the Holy One of Israel, but it says there, I am your maker. And that is important because God is saying, I've created you not only physically as a nation, but I've created you spiritually to be my witnesses. You have not been that, but nonetheless, I'm going to call you back and restore you that you can be my witnesses again. Isaiah 47 and 4, he is the Holy One of Israel, and there it says, I'm the Holy One of Israel, your Redeemer. And that redemption comes at a great price, and ultimately it would come through Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. Then in Isaiah 48, 17, he is also the Holy One of Israel. But there it says, I'm a a leading redeemer, because uh, the language there, and I want us to maybe look at it just briefly. Look at Isaiah 48, 17. Isaiah 48, 17 says, Thus says Yahweh, your redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am Yahweh your God who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. So this is even some indication of his intimacy. I'm a redeemer, but I'm going to lead you. Follow the example that's set by the prophets and by my word. And then also in Isaiah 49.7, God is the Holy One of Israel, but there it communicates that he is a faithful God. And that's what's so beautiful about what's being said in Isaiah, that God is absolutely faithful. Israel, you have been unfaithful. You have not been a good witness. I created you for this sole purpose, that you would be a witness to the nations, but you have not done that. 
but I will remain faithful. Why does he remain faithful? Because we see time and time again um, in Isaiah 40, he makes the statement, thus says the Lord, or really, thus says Yahweh. In 48, 17, thus says Yahweh. In 49, um, 7, thus says Yahweh. 49, 8, thus says Yahweh. Um, 49, 22, thus says Yahweh God. And it goes on and on and on. The question is, okay, what does that have to do with faithfulness? It is God saying, I have spoken, it will come to pass. My words are true. And why is it important um, although the NASB here has Lord, it is actually Yahweh. And I think, I, I like what the new um, Legacy Standard Bible has done, where they have purposely gone back and translated all of those as Yahweh. And it's important that we see it as Yahweh, because Yahweh is a statement of God's self-existence, but it's also a statement of God as the covenant-keeping God. So when, they, when a Jew would have thought about Yahweh, an Israelite would have thought about Yahweh, that they would think about God is a God of self-existence, but also God is a covenant-keeping God. And so what God is saying throughout, thus says the covenant-keeping God, the covenant-keeping God, the covenant-keeping God, you have not kept the covenant, but I will. You have failed, but I cannot. It's not that simply he won't, but he cannot fail. And that's the beauty of serving the God that we do. It is an impossibility for him to fail. Now, it, it's possible for us to be faithful. And we strive for faithfulness, but at times we do fail. Uh, but for him, it is impossible not to be faithful. And it is impossible for him to fail. In Isaiah 40, I'm sorry, Isaiah 54 verse 5, Again, it says that he is a redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Then in Isaiah 55, look at Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55, in this text that talks about his graciousness, notice what he says in Isaiah 55, verse 5. He says, Behold, you will call a nation you do not know, and a nation which knows you not will run to you, because the Lord... He says, your God, or Yahweh, your God, even the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. This same thought comes up in Isaiah chapter 60, in verse 9. Isaiah 60, verse 9, notice that briefly. It says, and for the Holy One of Israel, because he has glorified you. These nations will come to the people of God. Um, why? Because God is going to glorify Judah. That's important because we see a transition that's taking place in Isaiah 50 all the way to the end of the book, essentially saying uh, in the future, God will glorify his people. God will make all things right on the earth. And one thing that will happen is this, treacherous Judah. I mean, think about this. The Judeans uh, would have been reading this and hearing these prophecies in the midst of their treachery. And so in their minds, it, perhaps they would have been thinking, wait a minute, is it going to be so great and so wonderful? How can it be? Here we are, we're stuck in Babylon. He's going to return us to the land, but we're stuck under the, the power of this great kingdom of Babylon. And he's going to glorify us and nations are going to come to us and they're going to bring us silver and gold and nations are going to bow down to us. They may have struggled a bit to even believe it. How can that be? We're scattered throughout the Babylonian Empire. This makes no sense. Maybe Isaiah got it wrong. And God is saying throughout, no. And that's why he says, for thus says Yahweh, for thus says Yahweh, for thus says Yahweh. And that's a word for us as well. Either we have to make a decision whether or not we will believe the word of God or not. When God speaks, will, will, he, will we in fact believe it? And that's what's being communicated here. He says, I will glorify you. Then notice in chapter 60 what he says. The last time that we see this Holy One of Israel in chapter 60, then in verse 14, it says, the sons of those who afflicted you will come bowing to you. 
And all, and all those who despise you will bow themselves at the soles of your feet. And they will call to the city of Yahweh, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. God is saying, here's the last statement of the Holy One of Israel in the book of Isaiah. And he says, ultimately, all of your enemies will bow before you. And all the people will crowd to that great, great city, Jerusalem, which I have protected before. I will protect it in the future because I'm a faithful God. What a lesson to learn. And the lesson is uh, surely this. It is not because of Judah's faithfulness. It's not because of Israel's faithfulness. This is all the grace of God. And that principle is still true today. Aren't you thankful that we have so many blessings in our lives and those blessings are not based on our faithfulness all the time? Yes, God is looking for us and desires that we, be, that we would be faithful. But if everything that we receive that was a blessing was based on us living the Christian life that we should, I'm con- I would conclude that we would have very little. Because we're not always living the Christian life the way that we should. But God is a gracious God and he blesses us even at times despite us. And this is what you see with Israel, with Judah. God is saying they will bow down to you. Why? Because you've been a great and faithful nation all of these many centuries, all these many millennia. No, it's not because of that. He's saying because I'm a faithful God. I will deliver you. They will bow down to you. In one sense, you're undeserving of it. And why will they bow down to you? Because my servant, the suffering servant, he would do what you were meant to do. He would be that light, and he would be that sacrifice, and he would be that representative. So now I show you grace. So when we think about God's holiness, yes, a God that's unapproachable, a God that's unique, a God that's separate, a God that hates sin, and he must punish sin. And this is what we even see in Isaiah 6. Here's the transition. Why is God, in chapters 1 to 5, why is he constantly saying, woe to the nations, woe to the nations, woe to the nations, because they're sinning. And the basis for him saying that I'm going to punish you is chapter 6, God is holy. And because he is holy, the nations must be punished. And even Isaiah And what does Isaiah say in chapter 6? He says, well, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I'm amongst the people of unclean lips. Woe is me, he says, I am ruined. I am utterly undone. What can I do? Because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And what happens? One of those burning ones. And the seraphim, and that's actually can be a name for a seraphim. It's one of the burning ones. And why are they the burning ones? Because they're in the presence of God's holiness. And even the sense of the word for holiness captures the idea to burn, to have light. And they come and they take a coal. And what, it, what, what do they do? They touch the lip of Isaiah and it says, your iniquity is forgiven. And then the response, here is always the response to forgiveness. The response to forgiveness is worship. And what does Isaiah do? Um, God makes a pronouncement, who is going to go for me? And what does Isaiah say? Here I am, send me. And then he tells him the message. And if you to look at verses 9 and 10 of Isaiah 6, the message is one of judgment. Because I'm holy. That's why all the woes were pronounced. And no one is listening. They're, they're saying to me, I must prove myself, and God need not be proved. We serve a gracious God, though. Notice, if you will, go with me to the book of Judges. Go with me to the book of Judges. This idea that God is a separate God, a unique God. In the book of Judges, we see an account that although God um, is a holy and great God in Judges chapter 6 is the first occurrence, Judges 6. When people understand that they have interacted somehow with the holiness of God, it's something that should instinctively make them want to quake. I've been in the very presence of God. In Isaiah, I'm sorry, Judges chapter 6, 22 to 24, it says, when Gideon saw that he was the angel of the Lord, he said, Alas, O Yahweh God, for now I have seen 
the angel of the Lord face to face. Then verse 23, the Lord said to him, peace to you, do not fear, you shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and named it, the Lord is peace. The Lord is peace. So the expectation of seeing the angel of the Lord to see his holiness is death. He's thinking, what is going to happen to me? I have just seen God. And that's why I don't, I don't hear as much of it as I did years ago. And Some of you may be too young. There was surely a trend, it seems like, in the 80s uh, with some of these uh, what I call crackpot preachers. And a crackpot preacher is this. Someone in my fellowship group, I didn't realize I used that term a lot, crackpot preachers, and someone came to me afterwards and said, um, Pastor Hargo, what's a crackpot preacher? <laughs> and a uh, crackpot preacher would be this. Um, uh, the scripture tells us there's some people who, uh, they're cisterns, broken cisterns. And those broken cisterns can hold no water because they're crackpots. And I refer to them as crackpot preachers. That is, they, they can hold no content. Uh, they're damaged, if you will. And... Um, and there were a number of these preachers, it seems like in the 80s, uh, and people were having visions of God and seeing God. And even at times, Benny Hinn claimed that he saw God. Kenneth Copeland claimed that he saw God. And he was, and he's still such an utterly ridiculous person, um, that he claimed that he saw God, and every morning he would have this conversation with God. And even he would talk with God while he was shaving. Can you imagine that? You think, no, you're kidding me. No one said that, right? Not after going through all of these verses about God's greatness and his holiness, that someone actually said that they would have a conversation with the living God while they're shaving. I mean, I can barely shave without nicking myself. How can one shave and have the living God standing next to you? Not possible. Do you agree with that? Not possible. Gideon is thinking he's going to die. And when God referred to Gideon as a valiant man, that's why he would lead the men in warfare. And he thought, even myself, I'm going to die because I've seen God, the angel of the Lord. Notice, if you will, in um, Judges 13. Judges 13. Remember the episode with Manoah and his wife, and from Manoah and his wife comes Samson, and their interaction with the angel of the Lord in Judges 13, verse 21, and it says, and that it says this, listen, now the angel of the Lord did not appear to Manoah or his, or his wife again. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. Initially, he didn't understand that. So Manoah said to his wife, surely we will die for we have seen God. That's the response to God's holiness. And it's interesting in that episode, Manoah's wife um, really gives Manoah some common sense. And it says, no, we're not going to die because he made a promise. We can't die. The response to interacting with God is, is something that should make us at times even tremble. Yeah. God is a great God and a holy God. Notice I want to read a quote. And this is from A.W. Tozier's the knowledge of the holy. And I think that's a great book to read. I think every Christian should read it at some point in time. The knowledge of the holy. Uh, written like early 60s. Um, and it says this. God's holiness is not simply the best we know infinitely bettered. We know nothing like the divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable incomprehensible and unattainable. Holy is the way God is. To be holy, he does not conform to a standard. He is that standard. That's a great quote, isn't it? I mean, think about that, what he says. And I love the verse, first part. It's not simply the best we know infinitely bettered. So we know a standard but it's just the better of the standard. No, it is the standard itself. It is God. It's who God is. We cannot attain to it fully. But yet, think about it. The scripture tells us what? God is holy, therefore you shall be what? 
holy. We're to strive for it. We're to be like him and strive to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. So, God is holy. Let's work through these other aspects of God's greatness and how we need to stand in awe of him. So the first one was just that, stand in awe of a holy God. Number two is this, stand in awe of an intimate Savior. Or stand in awe of a holy Savior. Stand in awe of an intimate Savior. Number two, look with me at Isaiah chapter 41. Isaiah 41. Isaiah 41 and then verse 10 He is, in fact, an intimate Savior. How do we know this? Notice verse um, 10 of 41. He says here, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, and surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And what's beautiful about it, you see this idea of God's hand throughout Scripture. Let me just give you some examples in the psalm. It's when it talks about God's hand, and this is communicating intimacy. Psalm 18.35, it says, You have also given me the shield of your salvation, and your right hand upholds me, and your gentleness makes me great. Then in verse 36, it says of um, Psalm 18, You enlarge my steps under me, and my feet have not slipped. Why? Because your right hand is there for me. Isaiah 37 and 24, it says, When he falls, that is the righteous, he will not be hurled headlong, because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. And what it's saying, he may stumble, but he won't ultimately collapse, because God is holding his hand. Psalm um, 73, verse 23, um, Asaph writes this, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. Psalm 108, verse 6, he says, That your beloved may be delivered. Say with your right hand and answer me. And then in Psalm 139, it says, Even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. So this sense of intimacy that is communicated here. This is wonderful. Why is it wonderful? Because... We need to think about the idea of God's right hand. Also in Isaiah, uh, Isaiah talks about how by God's right hand, he is going to defeat his enemies. The enemies are the people of God. But with this same hand, it's the one that intimately guides his people along. Um, going back to parenting again, even I had a conversation with some of the elders um, in the break there, and we just again talked about ministry and how so many things are connected with family and parenting and the Christian life even. And that's in part one reason where God says to an elder, make sure that you can manage your household well, because if not, you cannot manage the, the people of God well. And so the idea of hand, when we think about a hand, we think about guiding someone, do you not? Okay, um, question for you, those of you who are married. Do you remember the first time you held your, your, either you were dating or your fiancé's hand? Do you remember that? Anyone remember that? Okay, so yeah, yeah, maybe I do, kind of. I like. Do you hold their hand now? All right, I like that. There you go. I got some cooperation here. All right, there we go. Give him a hand right here. Oh, wait a minute. What are you doing? <laughs> What are you doing? I got some cooperation here, right? You reach out now. When you put your arm around someone, what are you essentially saying? I'm doing what? Oh, it's a sign of what? Affection. Is it not? Okay, thumbs up. What up? Is it also a sign of protection? Okay, it's a sign of protection as well. And it could be something pretty plain as well, particularly with ladies. I'm cold. Can you pull me closer to you? <laughs> or you have to give up your own jacket, right? Yeah, the sense of hand, protection that's there is intimacy. And it's interesting in certain cultures, particularly in Africa that I'm aware of, the first time I ever saw it, I thought, oh, that's interesting. I mean, men walking down the street like with their fingers interlocked, talking with one another. But that's culture. It's, it's not because they are that way. It's just what they do. They're saying, brother, let's go and talk. And they're holding hands. It hasn't grown on me, so <laughs> I'm going to let that be their culture, and the Lord bless you. 
So the sense of intimacy, you hold a hand. I have seen it so many times here over this weekend, and I've seen little ones darting all around, and what are parents doing? Give me your what? Give me your hand. You go to the store, give me your hand. Let me hold your hand. Let me guide you. But interesting, God says with this same hand, his right hand, his hand of might, I'm going to smite your enemies. But this is the same hand that says, I'll take you by the hand. I'll hold you and I'll guide you. And there's a certain handshake, if you will, that I'll give a man. Okay, let's test it. Let's see. All right, shake my hand. Excellent. That's a good handshake. Okay, shake my hand. That's much better. See, notice, notice the difference in how I use my hand. And I have a big hand. Could you imagine if I gave her the same handshake? Then he would be over here having words for me, wouldn't he? <laughs> Let's not do that again, Hargrove. <laughs> right? Then he'd want to give me a hand, right? <laughs> That's how the hand works. It's a beautiful image. It is done on purpose. This is not Isaiah or the psalmist or anyone else just saying, oh yeah, well, God takes us by the hand. There's no better way to say it. It really has no significance whatsoever. No, it does. And notice the language as well. Go back to Isaiah um, 41. What is so important in verse 12, he says, do not fear, for I'm with you. And this would make perfect sense. They're away in Babylonian captivity. Don't fear. The Babylonians are mighty, yes, indeed. But I raise up the Babylonians, and I will bring them to an end when the time comes. Don't fear. What is the thing that Christians often can fight the most? And why is this command, do not fear, literally repeated the most in the Bible? Because we tend to do what? Fear. To have anxiety. To have worry. When God says, don't fear, I am with you. And if God is with you, the scripture tells us what? Then who can what? Be against you. No one. They have to go through the living God. And everyone in this room right now, I I can assure you, at least I hopefully this is the case, If someone in this moment came in here and wanted to hurt anyone in this room, I'm expecting every man to get up and say, what? No, you have to come through us first. You're not going to touch anyone here. And if you're walking with your wife or with a friend and someone threatens them, no, you, you have to deal with me first. I'm with them. This is more than proximity. This is relationship. And this is what God is saying to the people of God. And notice what he says, I'm with you. And this next language is so wonderful. Notice what he says in verse 10. Do not anxiously look about. Don't anxiously look about. Um, Anxiety. And what is anxiety? This sense of a fear of the unknown, uncertainty. We worry, we concern ourselves too much. We become anxious. And this is why even in the Sermon on the Mount, I don't know if you've gotten there yet uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, your Heavenly Father cares for you. Don't be anxious. Don't worry. I'm with you. People tend to worry. And of course, for Judah, they surely would have worried. We're in exile. And all this talk about deliverance and Savior. And all this talk about one day people are going to bow to us. Really? Yes. I'm with you. But we've sinned. I, I know it. But I'm a forgiver. I'm a redeemer. I'm your maker. And this is beautiful. Anxiously look about. Um, let me share an illustration with you. So, um, in some ways in our parenting style, you might call it, we're definitely not what today can be modern parenting, because uh, I think modern parenting is unbiblical parenting, really. Um, it's like, you know, hey, let them, they're free, they're kids, let them have their way, let them identify with whatever way they want to identify. No, no, they're kids, they need direction, do they not? They absolutely need direction. 
And I'm not one for modern parenting. You know, kids referring to their parents by their first name. Ah! <laughs> I mean, it's like I cringe. I mean, I, I can't even imagine my kids saying to me, Carl, Carl. Okay, if you want to say uh, Carl Anthony Hargrove is my father's name, you have to finish that thought. Imagine my kid coming to me, hey, Carl. Wait a minute. I, th I think you said, hey, Carl, to me. But actually, you actually said, sir. That's what you said, correct, right? That's what you said. Modern, see, that's modern parenting, and I see it all the time. Or modern parenting. You know, we can't, you know, uh, we can't corporal punishment, you know, spanking a child. No, I know God's word says it throughout. I know the word of God says throughout that if you hold back the rod, you spoil the child. If you don't punish him, you don't love him. I know it says it, but we just want to use our wonderful flowery words you know, with our kids. Yeah, you know, don't hit Bobby like that. That's not nice. Don't give him a black eye. That's not a good thing to do. No, go to the back room, and I'm going to have a session with you. That's what we're going to do. So we're a bit, we're traditional, old school. It may even say old school. So this leads up to this point. Don't anxiously look about. At times, we go, you know, to Lowe's or to Home Depot or something like that with the kids, especially when they're small. And I say, stay right here. Come, come with me. Let's go down here. I'm looking for a Phillips head screwdriver or whatever it may be. And lo and behold, kids tend to do what? Do they always stay near you? What's the vote on that? No, they don't. Kids tend to do what? Wonder about, don't they? And they wonder about, and I'd say to them, Stay right here. And they didn't stay right there. I said again, stay right here. And they didn't stay right there. So they wonder about, and I see them an aisle over. And you know what I've done at times? Hmm. I've hidden. <laughs> yeah. And I'll just move back out just a little bit. And I'm watching them just like this. And then when they realize, uh-oh, where's dad? And you know what happens to that little heart and little mind? Do they have confidence now? Great, I'm on my own now. You know what happens to that little heart and mind? They become what? Anxious. They start looking about. They start wondering, where is dad? God is saying to the people of God, don't anxiously look about. I'm here with you. And after an, an amount of time, I think they've learned their lesson. You know what I'll do? And I'll call out their name. Hey. And you see them. There is dad. And they come. And do you know what I do? I put out my hand and say, take my what? Take my hand. And I pull them to the side. No, you lost your freedom. <laughs> so the rest of the time in Lowe's or Office Depot, you're with me the whole time. And when they were still small enough, put them in the cart. There they are right there, strapped them in. But you could see that anxiety on their face. And why did you see? They were fearing in that moment, like, where is dad? My protection is gone. I thought I was okay on my own. And then they hear that voice, and all of a sudden there's a sense, oh, there's comfort. A voice of comfort that comes. God says to his, his people, I'm intimate with you. I want to take you by the hand and hold you. What a beautiful consideration, huh? Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Here's the third way in which we can stand in awe of God. Stand in awe of an exclusive Savior. Stand in awe of an exclusive Savior. And I say this to introduce it. If you were to study, when you study Isaiah, and then you study the Gospel of John, you see this relationship that is in Isaiah and John. Because even in John, perhaps even a picture of what Isaiah saw in chapter 6, he saw the Lord in all of his glory. Then in John, it says that Isaiah saw my day. He saw my glory. So what did Isaiah see? John is making the statement in the gospel that Isaiah saw me. He saw my glory. I think Isaiah saw the glory of God in the temple that day. Isaiah saw the glory of God as he would write all of these great pictures of God in his greatness. That's the statement that is being affirmed in John's gospel. So we see a relationship between John's gospel and then 
the prophecy of Isaiah. And what you also see in John's gospel is this. Throughout you see what? You see these seven I am's. You know, I am the bread of life. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection. And then in Isaiah, you see I am, the great I am. And this is especially true if you were to look through Isaiah 40 to 48 constantly. You're seeing I am that I am. I am he. I am with you. This language is constant through Isaiah 40 to 48. And we see it um, manifested in a different way in John's gospel through him being the door, the light. He is the shepherd. He is the way. He is the resurrection. He is the life. He is the vine. And so there's a connection that is here. And so the greatest statement that John makes in his gospel is, of course, John 14 and 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And that would have been true um, for John's gospel because it was true in Isaiah's prophecy as well. How do we know that? Look at Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40. God is an exclusive Savior. Isaiah 40, verse 18. It says here, to whom then will you liken me? Verse 18. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? And he says, what likeness here? Because the people of God would have been trusting in idols. The Babylonians surely trusted in idols. The, the Assyrians trusted in their idols. And God has said, don't you dare compare me to an idol. And this is part of his argument, especially from chapters 40 to 48. How dare you compare me to an idol? The idols are nothing. They're meaningless. They have no power. How is it that you would compare me to an idol when someone creates an idol by their own craftsmanship and I'm the one who crafted the very universe? How dare you compare me to an idol when idols come from someone that takes a wood and they carve out um, a fire for them, uh, wood for themselves and to make a block of an idol, and then what's even left over from it, they use it to build a fire. It's utterly ridiculous that you would make that sort of comparison with me. I won't have it. And he says it even right here in verse 19, as for the idol, a craftsman cast it, a goldsmith plates it with gold, and a silversmith fashions chains of silver. He who is too impoverished for such an offering selects a tree that does not rot. And what he's essentially saying, some of you are building idols and you build some idols with metal. But some of you can't afford metal. So what do you do? You get a tree that doesn't rot. You seek out someone with the skill that has the skill to prepare an idol that does not totter. And he goes on to even say, some of you are building idols and what you have to do is put a railing under it. And that's the simple language of it. So that it doesn't fall over. So that it's balanced. Utterly ridiculous is what God is saying. I'm the maker of all things, and you would compare me to an idol? Can idols speak? No, they can't. Thus says Yahweh, I speak. Can idols create? I made the heavens and the earth. And God says um, in chapter 40, um, look at all that my hands have made. He says, I have made all the stars, and he uses this language. He says, I know them all by name. And then he goes on to say, not one of them is missing. I mean, think with me for a moment. Not one of them is missing. Why is that language important? I sent you off to Babylon. And what he's essentially saying, everyone that I have ordained to come back from Babylon will come back. If none of the stars are missing, how can any of you be missing? And that's why it's a wonder to even look into the stars and see just the magnitude of it. When we look at the vastness of the universe itself and billions upon billions of galaxies themselves, think about that for a moment. And I think I may have mentioned it to you I, I, in addressing this at some time a while back thinking about just our solar system. And imagine that there is a star, which we have a record of, a star that is nearly the size of our solar system. One star. And we think that our star is large. 
It's minuscule. Imagine a star the size of our solar system. And God says, I know them all by name. None of them is missing. And you would compare me to some other savior? Some other God? No, I'm an exclusive savior. Look at verse 25 of chapter 40. He says here, To whom then will you liken me? That I would be his equal, says the Holy One. And this is the verse that I was referring to. Notice verse 26. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these stars. The one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one of them is missing. Not one. I'm an exclusive savior. Look at Isaiah 43. Isaiah 43 In verse 3 it says here, For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I've given Egypt and Cush in your place. And then in verse 10 he says what? You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have trusted or have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Besides me there is no God form and there is none who will come after me. I'm exclusive. I share my glory with no one. And he says in verse 11, I, even I, am Yahweh, and there is no Savior besides me. It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed, and there is no strange God among you, so you are my witnesses, declares Yahweh, I am God. Never compare me with anyone is what he is saying. None can deliver out of my hand, he says in verse 13. I'm an exclusive Savior. Um, Jesus Christ said what? That there's a narrow gate. A few that find it. But there's a broad road. And there are people during the time of Judas exile that they were choosing a broad road. They were choosing the idols of the land. And God is saying that's utterly ridiculous. Why would you choose that broad road? Why would you choose an idol that has no breath, that has no life, that cannot speak when I'm here for you? I'm with you. Don't anxiously look about. Here's the fourth way in which we can stand in awe of God. Stand in awe of a protecting Savior. Look at Isaiah 41, a protecting Savior. Isaiah 41, 13 and 14, it says, For I am the Lord your God who upholds your right hand, who says to you, do not fear, I will help you. Do not fear, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I will help you, declares the Lord, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He's a protecting Savior. Help simply says it all. And you see it throughout these passages. If you were just to, to note the number of times that God says, I will help you, I will support you, I am your Savior, I am your Redeemer, and what he's trying to say to the people of God, he, he keeps enforcing it and enforcing it and enforcing it and enforcing it. And if you were just to read through Isaiah 40 to 48, and you say, well, how, why does he keep saying the same things over and over and over and over again? The reason is simple. We forget. We forget. How many times is God saying in the scriptures that he is a God of love, but then we forget? How many messages have you heard about God being a sovereign God who controls all things, but yet we forget? How many times does God have to say to us, don't fear, but yet we fear? How many times does he have to say, don't be anxious for anything, but then we find ourselves facing anxiety? How many times does the scripture have to tell us, Here are the things in life that really, truly matter in life. But then we have to be reminded again and again and again and again. He has to reinforce these things in our heart that we would trust him. And he's saying to Judah and he's saying to Israel even, and he said to people throughout um, biblical history who've read this, trust me. I am this sort of savior. I will protect you. Here's the next consideration. Stand in awe of a sovereign Savior. 
um, Isaiah 45, a sovereign Savior. And how is he a sovereign Savior? The big picture is this. God will use Cyrus the servant, which we see in verses 1 to 7. Cyrus is going to be used by the Lord to deliver the people of God from the great Babylonian empire. In verses 1 to 7, we see something that's important. Notice, again, thus says Yahweh to Cyrus, his anointed. You say, hold on a second. If you've not heard this language before, that is you. If you've not heard this language before, his anointed. Isn't the idea, isn't Jesus Christ? Doesn't Christ mean the anointed? Isn't it only for the suffering servant, the anointed? And he uses anointed of Cyrus. Here is Cyrus of Persian. How can he refer to him as his anointed? Because it's essentially saying, I have set you apart for a purpose. And that purpose is that you would deliver my people from the Babylonians. But notice something throughout, um, particularly verses 1 to 7. Notice how many times he says, I, I've taken whom I've taken by the right hand. Remember before we looked at the right hand, it says, I'm going to take you by the right hand. Um, don't anxiously look about because I'm with you. Now he says, I'm going to also take Cyrus by his right hand and I'm going to lead him throughout all of these other nations. He's going to wipe out all of these other nations and he's going to wipe out the Babylonians for you. Why? Because I have his right hand. Again, that right hand, it's tender and gentle. The right hand that says, come to me, I'm with you, is also the right hand that says, go and wipe out all of these nations. I do it for you. He's sovereign. People have a problem with sovereignty because they say, well, how can God do that? Because sovereignty carries the idea that God has the right to do whatever he pleases. Sovereignty carries the idea that God has the the power to do whatever he pleases. Sovereignty carries the idea that God has the, the desire to do what he pleases. So he has the right to do it, he has the desire to do it, and he has the power to do it. All three working in concert. Because uh, a person may have the right to do something, but not the power to do it. A person may have the desire to do something, but neither the power or the right to do it. But with God, all three are working in concert. So he says, I can, by my own good pleasure, use Cyrus to go and punish the Babylonians. Because now I'm going to free my people. And notice, if you will, even in 44 verse 28, notice how he refers to Cyrus there. It is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he will perform my desire and he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built, and of the temple, your foundation will be laid. And what is this communicating? Right here in verse 28 of chapter 44, he's saying, Cyrus is my shepherd. He is going to allow the people to go back. And what will happen? The people will go back, and they will build the temple. They will raise up the walls again because God has ordered it. God has ordered it. I want to... I was thinking about just some sense of dates. We need to have some dates in mind when we think about um, this idea of what God has done. Okay, let me give you some dates. Um, we started in Isaiah 6, and it says in the year in which Uriah died, it says. Uzziah, that is, Uzziah dies. So, the 767. The reign of Uzziah begins. 740 is when we see Isaiah 6, because that's when Isaiah's ministry begins. In Isaiah 6, God is going to send him. Uzziah is dead in 740. Then 722, God says, now what I'm going to do, I raise up the Assyrians. I'm going to send the northern tribes away, 722. Then in 715, what happens? The reign of Hezekiah begins. We looked at some of Hezekiah's reign towards the end. The Assyrians are threatening them. 
God says, no, stop right here. He sends one angel, 185,000 are killed. Shennacherib goes back to his land. He goes to his God, his false God. He's worshiping his false God. And the true God's word comes true. And his two sons come and slaughter him. And then what happens? Shennacherib dies. And that's in 681. He dies in 681. And then in 586, God says, I am a sovereign God. What I'm going to do, you have not heeded the lesson from your northern brothers. I'm going to send you off into exile, 586. So 722, 586. That's a long time to learn a lesson, isn't it? But they didn't. And then God says, now, another date, because I control all of history. What is going to happen is that in 539, the exiles begin to return. Because God is saying, I am a sovereign God. Wait on me. Wait on my plan to unfold. Trust me. So 539, what happens? Cyrus comes in. He defeats the Babylonians. Then in 538, the first exiles begin to come back. That's a long time, isn't it? Why do I bring up these dates? You say, what's the relevance of the dates? And I want to close with this thought. I gave you those dates for a reason. Especially beginning with 722, the fall of Israel, all the way then to 586, the captivity, and then beginning in 538, the first exiles coming back. That's a long period of time. And remember, Isaiah's writing to these people saying, trust the Lord, wait on the Lord. What's the relevance? Look at, I'm going to close with this thought. Look at Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40, verse 27. See, this will give you some context. In classic passage from the Bible, and it should be because it's a great, great passage. Um, verse 27, why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and justice do me escapes the notice of my God? What does that verse mean? The people of God would have been saying, God, where are you? Um, why is our way hidden from you? Why don't you deliver us? Why don't you support us? And then in verse 28, he says, Do you not know, have you not heard, the everlasting God, Yahweh, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired? His understanding is inscrutable. I'm unlike these false gods. Don't you know this? Meditate on this is what he's saying. Stand in awe of this. And then in verse 29, he gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Verse 30, though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet, verse 31, we see it in so many places. Do you not? You see it on t-shirts, you see it on um, photographs, you see it on sculptures. Verse 31, but we need to understand verse 31 in context. Yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. So remember, chapter 48 is opening up this episode of Babylon. What's the relevance of this? Verse 31, when he says wait, he truly means wait. They would have to wait a long time. This is not wait an hour. This is not wait a day. This is not wait a week. This is not wait a year. This is waiting decades and decades and decades and decades. But he says, wait on me. And you'll gain new strength. <laughs> They're taken away into captivity, you know, in 586. And they don't begin to come back until 539. And even when it's written, it's written before they're even taken into captivity. And God is saying, you will be, become captive, but I will come for you again. And what's the basis of God coming for them again? God is faithful. Despite their covenant treachery, God is saying, I will be faithful to my covenant, although you have not been. I'm a sovereign God, and I control all the nations, and I will raise up a nation to punish you. And I'll raise up a nation to punish that nation because I'm sovereign. Can we fully understand that and grasp it? No, we can't. 
But here's the thing about it. Can you stand in awe of it? Absolutely. Because it's true. So learn to wait on the Lord. Stand in awe of God. He's an intimate Savior. He's saying, I, I, I want to take you by the right hand and guide you through life. And allow him to do it. But I think what happens is this, just like sometimes with kids, they want to pull away from their parent and go their own way. We tend to do the same thing. We want to pull away from the sovereign hand of God and go our own way. But that would be to our own demise. Father, we thank you for these words you've given us and pray that you'll use them to your glory and that the people of God will be encouraged by it, that we would all stand in awe of you and your greatness. Amen.